Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. All right. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... I'm Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. Chris is my good friend from college and conveniently also likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Nick, which is me. The movie is 1987's Spaceballs uh, under the genres of adventure, comedy, sci-fi. The director is none other than Mel Brooks, who is well known for movies such as The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, History of the World Part 1, and Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Some other movies that were in the theaters at the same time in 1987 were the following. Harry and the Hendersons, Predator, Roxanne, The Brave Little Toaster, which somehow I missed that movie, but KJ was very familiar with, Revenge of the Nerds Part 2, Nerds in Paradise, RoboCop, Dragnet, Adventures in Babysitting, Inner Space, Full Metal Jacket, Jaws, The Revenge, which is 4, and Superman, Quest, The Quest for Peace, which is also Superman 4. Why did I bring Spaceballs to us, and what is it about? One of the things I found interesting is there actually is a plot. Sometimes in parodies, there is a very loose plot. I'm not going to say this one is super deep, but the main storyline is around uh, planet uh, Spaceballs, a uh, society who seems to have an uh, underperforming president, um, and they are running out of fresh air. So the whole plan is to steal Planet Geridia's fresh air supply, and uh, a, a lot of fun stuff ensues from there. One of the other plot lines is the princess of Planet Geridia is being forced to marry the only or supposedly only remaining prince in the galaxy, and runs away from the wedding, meets Lone Star, and a whole bunch of things happen there where they fall in love and live happily ever after at the end. It is a really, really fun parody of Star Wars and a, a bunch of other properties, which I'm sure we'll explore. I remember when I was younger, I watched a few movies, and I'm sure I've repeated this in other episodes, but especially when my cousin Justin came over because we both had limited TV interactions in our young childhood. So we pretty much watched VHSs of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and later Ninja Turtles. Okay, this is just how we were. And I remember we would watch Star Wars and we thought, wouldn't it be funny if we did a comedy that was based off of Star Wars? And at the time we knew of like Naked Gun, so we knew like Leslie Nielsen and we're like, what if he was Darth Vader? And, and then years later, I found out there was a Star Wars parody done by Mel Brooks. It was pretty much everything we would have thought of and more. So that's why uh, I have a very fond memory of this movie, and I thought it'd be a really fun one to discuss with you guys. Now, Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, what's your history with Spaceballs? You know, I've seen it before. I honestly don't remember. I might have seen it when I was a child. Um, I, I was big. I'm the only person I know whose favorite Mel Brooks movie is A History of the World Part One, uh, and I think that still stands. 
but I, I don't even know if I've seen this movie in its entirety. And, and it's such a vignette movie. It has, it has such little segmented scenes, which I, I want to talk about today. I mean, that structure is very interesting that even if you haven't seen the whole movie, you feel like you've, <laughs> you've seen the movie just because it's, you know, it's, it's, it has a narrative, but also about half of it is more, uh, more like Saturday Night Live skits than, um, than a single narrative. And so this honestly might have been the first time I've seen the movie from minute zero to minute 90 or when, whenever it ends. That is very interesting. This is one time I've seen a lot. And I can actually tell you, I have not seen it this time from minute zero to the end. Because every time I rewatch it, I fast forward past the opening joke about the very long spaceship. So, <laughs> so I actually cut that part out and then watch the rest of the movie. But needless to say, I'm going to turn it over to you, KJ. What are your initial thoughts on this one? I also don't remember the first time I saw it. I feel like the memory of the movie is as old as the movie. Um, but it, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, I also, I like a lot of the comedy that's not necessarily a parody. Like it's funny anyway, in addition to the parody parts. Um, great movie. Okay, uh, Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you. Have you ever seen uh, Star Wars, the source material? Uh, yeah, I, I happen to be a pretty huge Star Wars fan. I'm sitting behind a computer and Yoda is staring over the screen at me, judging me silently. Uh, I have Lego Star Wars stuff all over the place. I have lightsabers everywhere. Uh, and not too, not too long ago, I actually tried to figure out where did my love of Star Wars come from? Because my parents don't like sci-fi. And they really aren't that keen in the fantasy either. So where would I have come in contact with Star Wars? And it, lo and behold, it was this movie that I saw first. So you saw Star Wars first. I actually saw this one first, which I was probably a little too young for all of the uh, the curses that are in it. But needless to say, this was the first one I saw. And then once I loved this movie, I went back to find Star Wars and the rest is now history. Nice. Nice. Now, of course, uh, there is a critical question we ask all our guests when they join us. It's fundamental to the whole episode, to be quite honest with you. What is the best snack that you recommend while watching Spaceballs? Uh, well, my favorite food in general is probably pizza. And I think pizza really fits in with the theme of this movie because you have your, uh, your parody of Jabba the Hutt as Pizza the Hutt. And as a kid, I remember playing with all those little 70s and 80s action figures around the backyard. So I'm thinking that if you had any leftover pizza, when you and your, your loved one are done watching the movie, you could always draw a face on it and turn it into your very own Pizza the Hutt action figure. Uh, so I'm going to go with pizza as my, uh, my movie snack for this one. I think that's good. Well, unfortunately, at the end of the movie, he did lock himself in his car and eat himself to death. So that, that's a challenging way to go. That is, that is unfortunate <laughs> to hear. <laughs> it's time for Movie Quiz. And starting off with round one, the categories are Ludicrous Speed, Merchandise, and May the Schwartz Be With You. <laughs> Each of these categories will be worth one point, and I will allow Chris to pick the first category. Uh, I think we have to go with merchandise. Merchandise. It's time for question one. Known throughout the galaxy as the wise, the all-powerful, the magnificent, or just plain yogurt, yogurt is the keeper of the Schwartz, but his true passion is merchandise. What are the notable products that Yogurt shares with the travelers? We will be going, each person will mention one of the 
products and we will continue until the, there's no one, new ones done. So the person who says the last correct answer will win this point. Chris, I'm going to start it with you. Which is one of the merchandise that he shares with the travelers? Uh, he definitely shows them Spaceballs, the t-shirt. That is, in fact, the first thing he shows them. You do not have to go in order, but yes, Spaceballs, the t-shirt. KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you. Spaceballs, the flamethrower. The kids are going to love it. They are going to love that one. Tom, do you have anything else? Spaceballs, the sheet. Ah, incorrect. Spaceballs, the sheet is referenced in the movie when President Scrooge is uh, fooling around with those uh, blonde twins. He is under the uh, Spaceballs, the sheet, but that is not one of the merchandise that yogurt uh, presents to them. I'm going to keep going though between uh, Chris and KJ. You can still uh, take down this point. So, Chris, we're coming back to you. Uh, there was also Spaceballs, the coloring book, which appeared to be a Transformers coloring book. <laughs> Don't look too closely. <laughs> okay, back to you, KJ. Spaceballs, the doll. Spaceballs, the doll is one of them. Yes. And it's a talking doll, a little yogurt. May the Schwartz be with you. <laughs> a doll? That speaks. <laughs> a little call back there. Um, Chris, back to you. Uh, I believe there was Spaceballs the breakfast cereal. There is Spaceballs the breakfast cereal. Sounds perfect around this time of day when we're recording. KJ, is there any remaining items? If this wasn't there, it should have been Spaceballs the lunchbox. It is Spaceballs, the lunchbox. And since you both got the last ones correct, and there are no more that he brings up, you will each be awarded one point. My life is complete. <laughs> the reason I brought this up in the manner about merchandise, this is actually a really interesting gag that they have throughout the whole movie. And what you may not realize is the reason he went uh, full force with this is he actually asked George Lucas permission if he could do this movie. And the one thing George Lucas said, even though he found the movie very funny, was as long as you don't do merchandise, as long as you don't make toys. Because George Lucas made most of his money on Star Wars on all the merchandise. So that's why they added this gag throughout the movie like pretty prominently. Um, so, Tom, you mentioned one of them. Are there any other references to Spaceballs the something or anything that really jumped out at you in, in the movie? Yeah, they had Spaceballs the toilet paper, which looked pretty uncomfortable. You know, Spaceballs, they had Spaceballs I think, the coffee mat at one point when they go into the diner. There's a, a, a mat there. Yeah, like the diner mat. Yeah, you know. So, that, I mean, Spaceballs the toilet paper, I think, was the, the most prominent thing in my imagination. There was also um, Spaceballs 2, the search for more money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which isn't merch. It's, it's just, uh, it's sort of a reflection on kind of the, the purpose of the merch, right? You know, the, and, and kind of the, what's fun about that is it, it has this sort of, um, the idea of the, the merchandise and the kind of the, the reference to actually why we're doing this. As it, it kind of breaks the narrative of it. You know, which is like the kind of the whole point of of the jokes and a lot of the point of the kind of the Spaceballs stuff is that there's this um, self-reflection as to exactly why we're doing this and what we're hoping to get out of this. Yeah, the interesting thing about the movie, KJ, is that Mel Brooks actually did put feelers out about a sequel to Spaceballs. And funny enough, 
Rick Moranis, who was pretty prominent in like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids series and, and, and Spaceballs, he actually like left acting. So he did present it to him, but I think the economics weren't there enough that he went. He's literally one of those people who are like, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to spend time with my family. I think his wife had died. I'm not sure about this, but I think his wife had died and he wanted to take care of his children. Okay. I didn't know that specifics, but I do know that he pretty much, like after some pretty prominent movies, just kind of left. So I'm trying to think there was, there was some other. There's um, Spaceballs, the animated series that actually aired fairly recently within like the past 10 years. I've not yes. seen it. I know nothing about it, but I wonder if any of the sequel material made it into the animated series the parody the the prequel episodes because it came out pretty soon after that in like the early 2000s and it just went in and dove in it was like 12 episodes and it dove into all the prequel stuff it wasn't it wasn't great it wasn't bad it was nice to see lord helmet again but uh other than that it really wasn't anything to write home about the other thing even though it wasn't necessarily merchandise i liked how they had like mr coffee mr radar (laughs) they had a lot of that was their other like running gag on like things i think there was i think there was a mr rental in there too yes mr rental well that is the whole scene of where it's actually a, a pretty funny scene where they're watching the movie as it's being made we'll talk more about like fourth walls later um but it, it, that was a really funny one too. So I, I just thought it was uh, interesting how they really embraced the fact that the the one stipulation was no merchandise. So they really just laid it on thick about everything that could be marketed. And it's a great running gag throughout the, the movie. So Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you to pick the next category. Ludicrous speed or may the Schwartz be with you? I'm going to go with ludicrous speed. It's time for... Question two. Feared by all, Dark Helmet is the ominous enforcer of the Spaceball Society. He leads by example and follows his gut without hesitation to crush his foes, which brings him to a daring pursuit at ludicrous speed. As this is a dangerous proposition, what safety procedures are recommended before such a feat is taken? We're going to do this one in the same fashion as the last question, where the last person to give a correct answer will win the point. The scene enters where he says we need to go faster than light speed. We need to go to ludicrous speed. And Colonel Sanders warns him that he doesn't know if the ship can take it. And after being instructed to proceed anyway without caution, he, the Colonel Sanders gives off a certain set of precautions that the ship must take. Buckle your seatbelt. You have to fasten seatbelts. That is absolutely Correct. Uh, I do believe he tells them to make sure all the animals in the circus are secure. Uh, you said animals, right? Yes. So animal go- animals need to be secure in the zoo. Animals need to be secure in the zoo. Yeah, the only one I can remember was, I thought he said cancel the three-ring circus, but that's the only one. That, that, that is correct. So he's canceling the three-ring circus. Uh, Tom, we're going to go back to you. Oh, it's a three-ring circus. Animals must be secure. You're going to close the mall. Yes. You have to close all the shops in the mall. Chris. Unfortunately, the mall was the last one I had in my head. I don't know. I don't have another one. <laughs> okay. Uh, KJ, do you have another one? No, I'm out. He did list a bunch of things, but I can't remember what they are. 
That's why I asked the question. Because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of this, you probably could give me all the quotes. <laughs> so, so Tom is going to take down the point for this one. And the thing you have to do second is seal all entrances and exits. Mm -hmm. When you're going to ludicrous speed, you got to make sure everything is sealed. So I brought this one up because there's a lot of times there's comedic value in very quick phrases or things that you only catch glimpse of. And I, I really think it's funny that you didn't actually have to remember all of them to know that it was kind of funny that he was rattling off a series of nonsensical things mm -hmm. so that they could go to ludicrous speed. But I did want to bring up like just the pacing and how they insert different kind of jokes here and there. Uh, KJ, you mentioned before certain references. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys had any specific ones of these phrases throughout the, that were planted throughout the movie that really jumped out at you. Well, I, I would say maybe not a phrase, but one of the kind of self-referential aspects that I liked was the covering up of the crotch. Whenever, uh, in, the, in the beginning of the film, for those home listeners who haven't seen it, um, at the beginning of the film, a, a subordinate to Dark Helmet is punished when Dark Helmet shoots a, a laser beam into his crotch, and that's sort of the punishment. And so whenever a subordinate responds to Dark Helmet, he does it by kind of covering up his his, <laughs> his junk uh, in response, and you know I I like how that kind of uh, uh, is strung throughout the film. I also like they called each other spaceballs. If you were from Planet Spaceballs, I guess you were a spaceball, and they would kind of salute each other when they uh, interacted with each other. And it starts out as a pretty insulting salute, but then it ends with such a flourish. It would make me smile and laugh every time. The other thing I, I like is that they throw in these lines, but then there actually is a future payoff. So you could have thought this was just a series of nonsensical actions for comedic effect. But later in the movie, when the ship is being destroyed and they're looking for escape pods, you see the people of, from the zoo, you see the animals from the zoo, you, you see the people from the circus. Like it's, they actually didn't forget that like throwaway line. Like there was a payoff to all the different things that they were talking about. There's another throwaway line um, when they're going to self-destruct. The, they say it's irreversible. And Mel Brooks says, just like my raincoat. <laughs> it was completely unnecessary. <laughs> Although I may have a, a, a flaw in the script where they say there is no way to stop self-destruct. And then I think with like 10 seconds left, they remember that there's uh, a, uh, a cancel button or what was it? it? I forget the wording they used, but then it was out of order. <laughs> so, so even in the future, nothing works. It, it's a lot of fun how the, those things work, like the covering the crotch, the, the sort of middle finger thing. But I, I really did like the the circus performers kind of coming on. Um, it's the, the movie kind of makes its own set of, of codes, like things we recognize only by virtue of that movie, right? They're not they're not external to the movie, and so the movie creates its humor sort of by this self referential cycle where you, you invent a, a sign or a joke and then return to it over and over again, um, which doesn't help like the narrative. It doesn't allow the movie to kind of just keep going forward in terms of plot, but it sort of keeps disrupting the movie in order to, to put in jokes. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with the, that cycle. And I, I think that's what's fun when you see something that they, they mentioned in passing and it has a greater effect or when things actually 
you think are hyperbole and they are literal translations like comb the desert. And next thing you know, you see them with combs in the desert. And of course, the guy with the pick, he hasn't found anything. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay. Um, I am going to turn it over to KJ now for the final category. Um, I think you may want to pick May the Schwartz Be With You. May the Schwartz be with you. It's time for question three. Lone Star, with the assistance of his companions, Barf the Mog, Princess Vespa, and Droid Dot Matrix, execute a daring plan to reverse spaceship Mega Maid from suck to blow, thus returning the stolen air from planet Druidia, and then initiate its, its slash her, I guess, self-destruct sequence. With step one accomplished, Lone Star and Dark Helmet face off with the self-destruct button in sight. During his, this fierce duel, Dark Helmet reveals why evil will always triumph. Why is this? Everyone take a moment and then lock in. Locked in? Locked in as well. Evil will always triumph because it's able to fool you. <laughs> okay. Tom, why will evil always triumph? Because good is stupid. Chris. Why will evil evil always triumph? I wrote down, good is dumb. Chris is getting the points. Ah. Now you see that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. <laughs> I wanted to bring it up again. This is more of the nonsensical uh, dialogue. I, I just think it's funny that we all know that is a dumb thing to say, but it works perfectly in the scene, followed by... KJ, w tell us a little bit more about where the fool you comes in. The Dark Helmet and uh, Lone Star kind of have what are supposed to be lightsabers, but the saber comes out of the ring. So they're wearing a ring and the sabers are out and they're battling. And eventually um, Dark Helmet's like, ah, you know what, put her there. And they try to shake hands. And while doing that, he knocks the ring off of Lone Star's hand and starts mocking him for being tricked by the oldest trick in the book. I can't believe you fell for it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, what's interesting about that scene is even when they're, they're fighting, if you were fighting an enemy, every technique they use, they, they, they're not resourceful in the sense that he's continually, Lone Star continually tries to hit Dark Helmet, but he only attacks his helmet. <laughs> and he could clearly just swipe the body. And then on the reverse, when Dark Helmet starts attacking him, Lone Star literally holds his hand out and he's swinging like, un like under his arm. I'm like, clearly they could have had a little bit more choreography. But again, I know that was for comedic effect. But anything about that scene or because that really is supposed to be the big punch of the whole movie is the, the, the two good and evil are facing off. Anything else about that scene that you guys enjoy? Or maybe, who knows, maybe you didn't enjoy that scene. Well, the scene gets to the, the parody of the, of the movie. But uh, it, it seems like, you know, the, the movie has these kind of two ways of producing comedy. It has this, this parody system where we're parodying um, more, most directly Star Wars, obviously, but also kind of a collection of other things. I think Indiana Jones gets thrown in there at one point. Um, the bridge over the river Kwai gets parodied like a little bit at, 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 like there's a, like five seconds where they parody that. Um, and the other thing is this kind of um, sort of uh, uh, Hollywood parody or references outside of these, this kind of network of films. And that's where you get like the merch stuff, right? Which isn't about strictly a parody of a movie, though it, it touches on 
on Star Wars. Um, but you also get these kind of uh, uh, jokes like they are watching a movie to see where they need to go next. These kind of jokes that touch on the reference of the film, the camera hitting Dark Helmet in the head at one point and knocking him over. This scene, the, one, the scene we're looking at with, with the, the lightsabers, that seems to be most focused on the parody of Star Wars itself. Yeah, and I'm wondering if the, the parody is kind of making fun of it as an homage, as kind of a respectful a respectful allusion to Star Wars or, or using intertextual material from Star Wars, or is it a little more bloody tooth than that? Is it a little stressful with, with Star Wars? Is it a little um, sending it up for its own sake? Well, the scene that it's most directly parroting might be from episode four, where Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi go back and forth. And if you guys remember the choreography from that scene, it's probably less than in Spaceballs. So they could also be mocking, it, you know, heart, full-heartedly in a good way, the choreography from um, A New Hope. See, I, I thought they were setting up, and again, they can have multiple references, but I actually had more of the episode five vibe because of the, you know, quote of how he's talking about how they're, how they're connected. Um, Chris, as an avid Star Wars fan, where do, where do you, what are your thoughts on this one when reference material comes in? And, and did this culminate as powerfully as maybe one of those scenes did in, in the source material? Oh, well, I mean, they, they take everything from episode four all the way through episode six. So they're, they're picking in pieces because you have to remember that episode six was already out by probably five years when this came out. So they, they were, they had everything to go with. I kind of agree with KJ that, you know, that first lightsaber fight between Darth Vader and, uh, and Obi-Wan Kenobi is really, really abysmal when you look back to like the episode one Darth Maul lightsaber fight. So it's, they were definitely trying to like, play on like how those two are really not swordsmen in that scene and just to jump off what uh what tom what tom had said i really like the fact that they kind of break the fourth wall in that scene too by cutting down the boom operator like dark helmet points at lone star and says that it was his fault like i like it's just another one of those things where the movie never lets you really take it for like take it for granted or take it seriously it definitely always like at the moment that you start to think that you're you're like you're watching a film, it then abruptly stops and reminds you that you're watching a parody and it's a comedy and don't get too serious about this because it's kind of just supposed to be fun. Yeah, I was gonna say it, it has this kind of um, it's so it's always destructuring itself. So it has this kind of uh, a postmodern view of narrative in the sense that it's constantly the jokes are made out of fissure. They're made out of openings between narrative, opening in the narrative cohesion of the film. And so with, with those little moments where you have like a, a, a battle between lightsabers and then the boom mic operator uh, bites the dust or gets knocked over or whatever happens, um, it, it takes a comic moment that's already in reference to something else, right? It's living off the life of episode four or episode five or episode six, whatever. Um, and then it's taking that life and violating it or breaking it open in order to, to kind of keep this comic mode going. Um, yeah, and it, it's really kind of, it, it's interestingly postmodern in that sense. Now, going back to source material for the parody, Darth Vader 
is clearly an iconic villain, not just in the Star Wars franchise, but in general, in, in pop culture. Dark Helmet was supposed to be that character for this movie. Do you feel that Dark Helmet is successful in being one of the prominent ca- uh, characters within the story? I think he's the one that I remember the most. I mean, uh, he's he's got some of the most funny lines. He definitely like interacts with the audience most out of a lot of them. Like Tom had referenced the idea of the camera hitting him in the face. And then, you know, all, I always drink coffee when I watch Radar. I think that stuff's hilarious. Like he's got some of the best lines and Rick Moranis is just a great comedic actor. So I think he really stands up, not for the same reasons that Darth Vader stands out as a great character, but for reasons all his own, he definitely kind of is the best part of the movie for me. I'd also say he's the protagonist. And he's kind of going on the journey as much as Lone Star. Um, you you have a uh, oh, KJ looks look surprised when I said this. I, I'm actually uh, surprised too, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there seems to be there's two kind of plot arcs in this, right? There's the Lone Star rescuing the princess and getting her back to her planet, and then there's also these kind of series of vignettes which make up the space balls. The space balls are chasing them down. They're motivating the plot. But when you're on the bridge with with Colonel Sanders and Dark Helmet, and even the president, a lot of that is is just sort of little jokes, little pockets of jokes that seem kind of divided off. And with with Rick Moranis' character, with Dark Helmet, he's constantly discovering how things work. For a person in charge, he doesn't seem to know anything. He doesn't know what radar is. He doesn't know the coffee machine from the radar. He doesn't know how the, the, the light speed or ludicrous speed works. And, and for him, we're kind of in the same position he is, not as, you know, kind of villains who shoot laser beams into people's crotches, but we're also in the process of discovery, just as he is in the process of discovery. And so he becomes this kind of, um, th- there's an article, I don't remember who wrote it, but it was talking about kind of the, the trope of tourism in Spaceball, this idea that we're going through this universe and learning about the universe as we go. Um, and Dark Helmet is kind of that character for us. He's learning about the, the craziness of this universe as we are learning about the craziness of this universe. One of the things that I can say is I can kind of relate to Dark Helmet because he's literally surrounded by assholes. I mean, there's major asshole, lieutenant asshole, first gunner asshole. I mean, imagine trying to lead a whole civilization uh, and, and, and their conquest when you're surrounded by assholes. I mean, great comedic effect there, though. I loved it. But no, it's, it's interesting. It's outside of, he has an objective, but there's things that are outside of his control that he has to overcome. The opening of the movie where that ship goes so slow and it seems to take forever absolutely preps me for the movie. So that, to me, was the setup. And then what brings me in 100% is when Dark Helmet asks them to fire across her nose, not up her nose. And that whole scene unfolds and you realize you're in for a treat with this movie. I, I love that one-two punch. Uh, that scene is probably my the funniest scene in the movie for me. The, the fire one across her nose scene. Uh, it's, it was the oft, most oft-quoted scene in the house. And it's just, it, it fits so many different real-life scenarios. And it is kind of like when you're in a bind or when you're in a situation where you just feel like you're surrounded by incompetency, you could say that and totally lighten the, lighten the mood just because everybody kind of brings it back to, to that scene, that movie, and everything else they might like about it that's uh, just off the wall and outlandish. 
So who was the most incompetent? I would I would say the most incompetent is probably the president. Just because, you know, like the the whole, like you said, the plot of the story is to go to planet Druidia and steal their air. And it's most likely that president's fault as to why they don't have it. He's, he's out, he's outright lying on the phone that they have plenty of air. There's no air problem. And then immediately reaches down into his desk drawer and pulls out a, a, a can of fresh air. So I, I would say it's probably him. I would say it, it's him also the president. And what's funny is the president's played by Mel Brooks, who's also the director, you know, the, the president of the film, so to speak. Um, and th- there's kind of a, 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 seems to be a little joke on um, not only him as president, but him as director. Like if this film is shoddy or, or incompetent in some way, um, you have that kind of layering, right? That the president is the incompetent runner of this planet. Uh, Mel Brooks is sort of the, the harebrained runner of this film, you know, that type of thing. And not to jump back to one of his other material, uh, but the producers is all about creating the worst play, and he actually makes a great play. You know, so that's a common. It's not, not the first time he's gone down that road. I was going to say that's that's a common shtick, right? Yeah. Is, Look at this disaster! Wah, wah. <laughs> um, in terms of competency, Pizza the Hut doesn't rank too high. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that guy. He doesn't seem to do much. Um, I don't know. I mean, off screen, all these guys must have done something if they're the president, if they are, you know, the commander of the ship, essentially. And Pizza the Hut is just presumably the leader of the, the gangs. So I don't know. That's a good question. I think that's called failing upwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I will say I, I probably would lean in the direction of the president because even though Dark Helmet is incompetent at time, he has the knowledge to see that the president is even more incompetent. And there's even when they have a mild success of, of uh, starting to get all the air, he pretty much says that with this president, he'll he'll lose it in I don't know how, how many days it was, but he pretty much squandered it as quickly as they got it. So he doesn't see and, and the, the one of my favorite like one off um jokes is the combination to the airlock is one, two, three, four, five. And then um Dark Helmet makes the joke about how stupid it is. That's like what some dumb person would put on uh, the combination to their luggage. And then later the president comes in, they give him the code. He's like, wow, that's the same as on my luggage. So it's just kind of an ongoing thing. That reminds me, I should change the password on this Zoom meeting. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Well, guys, uh, when we get to the end of round one, our illustrious guest, Chris, is currently in the lead two and you the rest of you tom and kj have one point we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be back for round two shortly marlo sits in his hard worn leather chair a cigarette in his mouth whiskey on his breath her memory glowing in his eye the life of a private eye wears on the soul, leaving only the toughest of the tough to swim in the grimy waters of 21st century San Francisco. His partner, Miles, wanders in, his tie undone, his hair a mess. Ah, what a crud of a man. Even his wife can't stand him. What's the case? Marlowe grunts. A dame. Her name is but call Marlene Eliza O'Shaughnessy Rutledge, and she wants us to spy in some startup, Splice Craze Lab. Eh, you should see a Marlowe. My God, what a knockout. She has pegs that could stake your heart. 
Leave off of that pool hall talk. What's the job? Ah, you. Well, she says Splice Craze has kidnapped her husband, Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet Esquire, and is using him to do experiments. And we're back for round two. In this round, you will receive two points for each correct answer. And the categories are Nice Dissolve. I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate. And Perry Air. I am going to let Chris start us off. Uh, well, I'm going to go with I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate. It's time for question four. While mostly associated for being a Star Wars parody, this is one of many properties that Liberty's taken for comedic effect. Of the plethora of examples in Spaceball, which source material aside from Star Wars had the most impact on the movie? Feel free to briefly cite related scenes slash scenes. This is a subjective question. So you will all give me your best example and we will see which one I agree with the most. Locked in? Locked in as well, I guess. I'm going to go to locked in also. I'm, <laughs> I changed my mind, but I'll... I'll... Chris, you're, you're in the hot seat. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to go back. This is a little bit of knowledge that I found while researching the movie. Apparently, Mel Brooks is a Star Wars fan. He did like the Lucas movies, but even more than that, he's a Star Trek fan. And we've been talking about favorite scenes and funny scenes. And one of my favorite scenes is uh, when Screw begets teleported or transported from one room to the next. And he ends up with his head on backwards. And there's the whole reveal of how big his butt is. That whole thing and the whole fact that Scotty is there and he's obviously supposed to be Scottish and he's wearing a, a different hat than everybody else. That just points to me that, you know, Star Trek is another one of the things that, that was in the back of Mel Brooks's head as he was making this and writing this. And probably had more influence on the movie than than even this just one scene but i'm gonna go with star trek another star trek reference that i like is when lone star attacks one of the guards and does the vulcan death grip incorrectly and the guard corrects him i i really enjoyed that scene too and then also shortly thereafter he gets the vulcan death grip right with the next guard but for some reason the guy the, the guard is guarding the self-destruct feature and shaving so he he's just decides this is a good time to shave. Lone Star uses the Schwartz to bring over the shaving cream, gets the shaving cream all over his face in graphic detail for some reason, and then Vulcan death grips him. So now, KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you for what you're locked in with. All right, this might be a little unorthodox, but... I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I think um, the Wizard of Oz references. You have when they're walking towards the yogurt statue... Um, you have the lion's tail, it's the four of them, Dorothy, the whole nine yards. And then also the parody of the Jawas is very similar to the Munchkins from Wizard of Oz. Dink, 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 dink. So I'm going to go Wizard of Oz. Oh, I have two of them and I've been juggling them back and forth. I, well, I locked in Temple of Doom. So when they approach, and it's actually directly referenced in the movie. Right, when they're approaching the, the, the Schwartz, they're terrified. It's, it's you know, they, there is a direct reference to Temple of Doom. So Indiana Jones um, source material in general or? Um, you know what? That gives me a greater chance of winning. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you, so you have that. You have the kind of the. You also have this idea of the kind of the, the rogue hero who's um, kind of a jerk. And Harrison Ford didn't invent this trope, obviously, but you know, in both with both Indiana Jones and with um, Han Solo, he's basically kind of filled that out that character out for another generation. And I think Lone Star seems to be taking um, from, from more of a Harrison Ford type uh, than just, let's say, Han Solo or, or just Indiana Jones. I think it's more, he's more like Ford-esque than, than anything else. So Chris had Star Trek, KJ had Wizard of Oz, and Tom had the Indiana Jones properties. And the point goes to... While well, all these were very good answers and we're going to explore them further, Chris will get the point. There, I think that is the most prominent of the references. Uh, but what, what I wanted to actually talk about in a follow-up to this question is the difference between parodies and references. I want to ex specifically explore parodies, some of the parodies we liked, how he used different source material for parodies um, in this movie. Um, now, just to elaborate, Star Trek, Yes, we said the teleporter scene, the Vulcan death grip. Wizard of Oz was definitely directly referenced to when they're walking up to the man behind the curtain, or in this case, the giant statue. The Munchkins scene, though, I actually, from source material, I thought that was more of a, a Snow White and Seven Dwarfs reference than the munchkins from wizard of oz so i think that was otherwise i did like the wizard of oz indiana jones they do a lot even when we meet lone star for the first time he has an indiana jones hat on like the fedora hat and he kind of looks like a han solo you're absolutely right they also have influences um he's a hybrid of luke skywalker and han solo so he's like a mix of them but definitely did do uh, those references. Yeah, and it's interesting what parody is capable of doing, right? Mocking, paying respect, or, or both kind of simultaneously. And it's also interesting in terms of, of how reference works, right? And so you have this kind of, this comes from um, a, a critic, John Fisk, um, and how, how reference works in this to send up parody. And you have kind of what, what he refers to as horizontal and vertical reference. And so like a movie referencing other movies would be a, a horizontal, vertical would be this movie referencing other media. And we can think of merch, right? As, as being one of those things. The idea of reference and how reference works in this kind of raises the question for me of, is this film an adaptation of Star Wars or is it something else? Could we properly call this, this an adaptation of that, that film? I think you have already proven that this is not an adaptation of Star Wars when you suggested that Dark Helmet might be the protagonist. In order to be an adaption, an adaptation of Star Wars, I, I think you'd need a hero. And this movie lacks a, a hero. It does have a hero, though. I mean, Lone Star is the hero in every conceivable sense. We have a, we have a narrative in which a Luke Han figure, they kind of merge them together, but whatever you know who cares they do that in adaptation all the time you combine characters um, and then he has to go through these trials and tribulations he has to make a discovery um he, i mean he is he's luke skywalker through and through not in terms of personality but in terms of narrative arc right he even discovers in the end a change in parentage which reflects his change in um change in his character 
I was interested in that because there is this kind of maybe difference between what we might think of as intertextuality and and adaptation as different different processes. Uh, and so, like intertextuality would be something along the lines of references to other works, you know, in this case, other other works of uh, other films, um, and then adaptation would be this sort of process, possibly of incorporating this new text or this new material into a new work. And I'm wondering if it would be proper because of how parodic this thing is to actually even say the process of adaptation is occurring. If it's not just kind of collecting these, these sort of intertextual references. I don't know. Uh, again, I think it's influenced by all these sources, but it's not a recreation. Sometimes parody is an exact screen shot for shot. I'm just making it now stu stupid and funny. Whereas this is pulling from a lot of different source material to come up with its own narrative that is loosely based off of some of the narratives from all the source material, but not the direct line. I mean, we have to acknowledge that the basic plot line involves blowing up the major space station, which is a Death Star. I mean, and the fact that they always have a self-destruct button, which is a, a common trope that is more, more mocked now in, in sci-fi movies that are mocking older sci-fi movies. But there is those connections. But then there's straight-up parody, which is when they're in the diner and there's a recreation of the alien scene and then there's the dancing alien that goes, I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's, it's fantastic, but it's ridiculous. So they're taking something that was like a serious moment and making it as uh, ridiculous as possible, as lighthearted as possible. All of a sudden this little alien pops out, has a growl and is starting doing a show tune routine across the, you know, the countertop. I mean, that's, that's what this movie does. In, in terms of parody. Are there any other scenes when it comes to pure parody that jump out at you guys like that one? Oh, yeah. Um, this was going to be the other thing I was, I was dollying back and forth was the, the Planet of the Apes reference, right? And that, that's kind of like these things for the, the home listener. Um, uh, <laughs> at the end, when they blow up the giant maid who's supposed to, to suck all the air out, um, the head of the maid and her hand that holds the vacuum cleaner land on a beach resembling the, the Statue of Liberty. And then as the, the villains are trying to get out of the head, apes on horses ride up and they go, oh, look, it's Spaceballs. There goes the neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> you know, it had a kind of direct reference to the Planet of the Apes. And I, I think the way comedy works in this movie, it's kind of the way intertextual material works in this. It's not only self-referential, it's also, it's kind of like a hedgehog. There's just all these buyers of reference to other pop culture things kind of jammed in to, to this picture. It almost seems like the, the adaptation of Star Wars into, into this comedy is like a base structure to support, to support as many types of illusion and reference as possible. One of the other references I like is they talk about Rocky V. Thousand and six or something like that. I think it was five thousand. Is it just straight Rocky five thousand? <laughs> which we're getting there, you know, bit by bit. Um, I also this is a bit of a stretch, but the music by John Morris, whose name is similar to John Williams. I don't know. Um, and the music, yeah, the music is 
pretty elusive. <laughs> the music's great. Yeah. And yes, sounds very similar. Um, also, when the Mega Maid is transforming, there's one of the Spaceballs guys has a drum and it sounded very similar to 2001 to me. And he's boom, 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 boom. I really enjoyed that. It's great about that. It wasn't just soundtrack. They actually had a guy <laughs> on a drum. That was actually the one that I was going to reference. The fact that they, they broke the fourth wall while referencing <laughs> the importance of the music to the Star Wars series. And they kind of went, like KJ said, kind of 2001-ish with the way it sounded. It was, it was like a threefer they got there. They, they hit three birds with one stone. And and he's one of the guys who beats them to an escape pod in the end <laughs> with his drum. Yeah, with the timpani. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also like the the category of this question. Um, I am your father's brother's nephew cousin's former roommate, and I was trying to figure out what that actually makes them. I mean, Dark Helmet says nothing, but Lone Star could be so. Dark Helmet could be Lone Star's cousin's former roommate, or Dark Helmet's siblings former roommate or his cousin's cousin's former roommate which would really make him nothing and nothing again but and they're, they're roommates so it, there's it's still no blood <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i mean that's a that's why that whole scene while it references as, as chris said earlier all like four five and six that's why i think just in my head i jump right to five the the reveal of of, of darth vader as uh, Luke's father, like I just I think because that's how that scene starts. I'm just embedded in that mindset during that whole sequence. It may not be parody, but one of the other things that always jumped out at me in this movie was whenever there's like a computer feed or screen, it never actually correlates to what's going on. So there's a scene. Uh, the we were just talking about Chris. The uh, shoot uh, across her nose, not up it. The actual movie shows them that the the Mercedes spaceship uh, little space sh shuttle is moving away from them but the screen actually shows that they're coming closer together like and even when they're going navigating mega maids brain tunnels like in some scenes it's really like crooked and other ones when they're flying out it's smooth like none of that stuff correlates to the actual screens anywhere this is one of those things that i kind of look at movies now with a more discerning eye, I guess. I'm curious how much of that was for comedic purpose? Like, we want you to think that you're moving apart, but then it's not, so, like, none of this makes sense and it's supposed to be funny, or is it just, like, budgetary? Like, when we talked about the scene with the lightsabers, like, how it's kind of rudimentary and it's not really all that exciting, how much of that is because they just didn't have the technology or the money to do it better? And how much of it is for comedic effect? I think the lightsaber scene is comedic effect for sure. I think a lot of those computer digitized scenes were probably just because that was that was what they had and that was what they were using and we weren't going to make it perfect yeah and it's it's funny when they like there, there was some scenes with technology that you know they're just like we have this lying around let's do like he gets the key well in the one case when they're getting into the jail there's a giant key and he has to push the key and then in the later ones he has these little key cards and there's this one little machine where he like swipes across and pulls up a lever and i'm like even i know that's fake it doesn't do anything and then like, it just like they're like we're gonna do the bare minimum to create the plausibility of this universe and environment <laughs> my favorite was the land rover did you remember that the land rover when they're on the that the film's version of Tatooine um, is a car on glass. It's sitting on a mirror so that it's reflecting the sand. So it looks like it's it's floating. 
and it's clearly glass. <laughs> they clearly lined up glass around it. Um, yeah. I love that. I do love that scene. He's like, you're always preparing. Just go. He's like, you might want to sit down. <laughs> I, I, I do like the kind of the, the budgetary constraints, um, seeing the budgetary constraints. It has the, the kind of vaudeville feel of like, we're putting this together with tape and spit. Um, and, you know, and it's like however many jokes we can get out of it. And if something falls apart or goes wrong, we just point at it and laugh. I know one thing that we were, or at least I was actually a little surprised about when I was preparing for this episode is all a lot of the movies he made are just classics to me. I, I thought he had actually made a lot more movies than he did. On to the next question. I'm going to move to KJ to pick either Nice Dissolve or Perry Air. Nice Dissolve. It's time for question five. The director, Mel Brooks, truly embraces fourth wall breaks in this movie in which the characters relate to the audience. They know that they're in a movie. What scene do you believe best exemplifies this deliberate technique? We're going to do pretty similar to the last question, except we're doing... Where fourth wall breaks, and whoever we think I think is the best is gonna get the points. Locked in, locked in, locked in. I I think one of the best scenes that that does this, and I the scene shouldn't work, but it works wonderfully, is when they catch the stunt doubles. They're being chased through the mega maid, and they're running from this, and they jump through a door. <laughs> the jump through the door looks kind of corny. And all these baseball soldiers are lined up there and you see the backs of our four heroes and they turn around and it's the stunt doubles and they look hilarious. They look very close to the real actors, but they're not the real actors. And the space balls are all upset because they caught the wrong people. I thought that was a great scene and showed a great breakdown of the fourth wall. My favorite breakdown of the fourth wall is when they pop in the VHS of space balls and they watch baseballs and they have to explain how time works. Uh, and they look at the camera and go, well, what's happening now? Well, the, what's happening now is what's happening now. Well, can we go back to then? No, we can't go back to then because then is not then, it's now. And when is it happening? It's happening now. <laughs> when will it be happening? It'll be happening soon. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I, you know, I, I really, really like that. Oh, I definitely believe it's Mr. Rental and Spaceballs, the movie. I, I mean, it's, it's just awesome because once again, it takes you out of the movie for a second as you're going across his like blockbuster shelf of movies. It's all Mel Brooks movies. I think Blazing Saddles is in there. There's a couple other ones that are in there that are his. I think History of the World was one of them, perhaps. Uh, and then it's just the whole interaction between Darth Helmet and uh, Colonel Sanders and how the, exactly what Tom said, how they're interacting with each other and it's obvious that Dark Helmet has no idea what's going on or how things work in this universe, and he's kind of learning as he goes. So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely the Mr. Rental for me. Uh, Tom and Chris are locked in with the same one. KJ has stunt doubles to VHS. The points will go to very close. They're going to go to KJ, okay? But I very much like Mr. Rental, too. So the reason it went to KJ is not only do they look ridiculous, the princess is actually a guy with a weird mustache and a cigar. The cigar is what sells the whole thing. The actual person who is the uh, stand-in for Colonel Sanders is also a stunt double. So the stunt doubles were caught by Colonel Sanders' stunt double. So there's multiple layers 
of being in the movie. So I will say that. However, the scene that uh, Tom and Chris brought up is a, is they're they're very close. It's a fantastic scene, especially when he's when when Dark Helmet is getting so frustrated about timelines of who now. And one of the other parts that happened in there that I really enjoyed. So that it's very very close. I like when he's going through the part where they go to ludicrous speed, and it's like no 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 pass that. In fact, never show that again. It was great. Now we've already played around a little bit in some of our other questions, but are there any, I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to discuss, you know, some of the other fourth wall breaks that were spattered throughout the movie that we may have enjoyed. Cause there was a plethora. It wasn't just like, these aren't just the only two. I like when the, the camera hits dark helmet. I mentioned that before and knocks him over. Also, there's a weird one. I, is this a fourth wall break when Barf looks, I think he looks at the camera and goes, that's just what we, she, funny. She doesn't look Druidical. <laughs> uh, yeah, she goes, funny. She doesn't look Druish. And that is totally, <laughs> a, fourth, that yeah. is totally a fourth wall break because he looks directly at the camera. Like that is, that might even be one of the earlier ones. That's, you know, that, that is this kind of a vaudeville thing, um, which look, like looking into Mel Brooks did write for, for vaudeville. He wrote for this thing called The Show of Shows in the 50s. Um, the, the Sid Caesar thing, and uh, it, which is based upon vaudeville. It's it's a it's television, but it was kind of taken from from that world. And that joke is such a. <laughs> to piggyback off what Tom said, my favorite part of the of the jamming scene, which is the one where he gets hit with the camera, is not even watching Dark Helmet, but watch Colonel Sanders off off to the side, and like he sees the camera panning in, and actually has like a reaction to the camera moving. <laughs> where he kind of like shocked and backs up and then the hit, it hits Darth Helmet right in the head. So, I mean, like that scene works on multiple levels, whether you're focused on what you're supposed to or you're focused on the background. And I think we mentioned this one before. I, I really like when they say, nice dissolve. <laughs> that, that's, liter- that's literally the, the category. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I, you know, Lucas, Lucas um, in his Star Wars films, he was paying homage to the older serials that had, I guess, funny dissolves or um what's the word extreme dissolves um i've not seen them but i really like that they point that out it's like jj abrams is known for his lens flares you know like Mm -hmm. it's just like how he does that there's there's a lot of more um quick worded ones in there too so for example uh dot matrix when they're trying to escape the jail she goes i hate these kind of movies (laughs) like like she's in the movie saying how she hates the movie and of course I mean, nail, uh, nail on the head is um, yogurt. He's selling merchandise. He knows it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, I, this is such, it's such an odd thing because it, it does come from, you know, from theater, from vaudeville. This idea of, the, the idea of the fourth wall itself is something people made up in like the 19th century. Right. This is not like Shakespeare didn't have a fourth wall. There was, there was, this is a, you know, this idea of realism. We're just going to pretend this is like the living room wall is a bunch of nonsense. And most theater never did that. Most performance art never did that. And with vaudeville, it's just, you know, make them laugh, make them laugh, perform to the crowd. And when you have, um, when you have film by its necessity, making a fourth wall, and then you kind of import this, 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 uh, this kind of sketch comedy into it, you end up getting this bizarre thing where what we know as the most realistic form of art, right? Even if it's science fiction, 
you want your movie to look as real as possible, you know. Um, but when you, you do this kind of parody thing, when you point to the fourth wall, the, the effect isn't like early 18th century or early 19th century or something like that. The, the effect is this like discontinuity. It, it's like you're, you're unmoored. Um, it's really, really interesting uh, because even though it's both kind of older and traditional, it's also really like hyper-modern almost or, or, or post-modern because you're so used to continuity in movies like this. And fourth wall breaking uh, really frustrates that. The reason I wanted to bring this one up specifically, and again, there are fine lines between parody references, fourth wall, is that sometimes it's like shocking in a modern movie if they do like one or two, you're like, oh, they did it. Meanwhile, this movie, he just flourishes the whole movie with this technique. It's not subtle. It's, it's, this is, this is a, a, a structure that I want to use to its greatest ability. So I, I thought that was fun. And it seems like we have plenty of uh, times we thought that was uh, really additive to the movie. I am going to move on to the last question. And it does look like it's anyone's game because there is a bonus question after this. Uh, Tom presently has one point, KJ has three, and Chris is in the lead with four. So keep in mind there is a bonus question. Um, I'm going to start with this one. Uh, I think it's Tom. The last topic, the last category is Perry Air. It's time for question six. Not only is parody prevalent in this film, so are a variety of references across a wide spectrum of influence. What do you think, I think, is the best of these obscure references? I guess I'm locked in. This is a tricky one. Yeah, I'll lock in. I'm going to lock something in. I'm positive it's wrong, but I, <laughs> but I have to do something. Okay. Well, Tom, you can start it up. <laughs> I think the obscure reference you will like, and it's because we watched this movie together, is the reference to the, uh, the bridge over the River Kwai. There's at one point they referenced the song, do, 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 and they go, they go a marching to that. And since I saw the movie with you, I'm going to lock that in. All right. This is not obscure, but I just, I like the scene so much. <laughs> and I, I, I like the detail that they went into. Uh, I'm going to go with when John Hurt and they, the, the actor John Hurt, who actually was in the original Alien movie, has the chest burster pop out. Not only because that, but it's also a little bit of a fourth wall where he says, oh, not again, as if like he's referencing that he's in a movie talking about another movie that he was in. And then the whole, I remember it as the WB dancing frog going across the, the countertop with the, the top hat and stuff on. I'm sure that's not the original, but I just think that that scene is so iconic and just great the way that it was performed and acted. And the fact that they got the original actor to do it again was also really, really cool. So I, I may have misunderstood the question because the category was Perry Air. So I thought you were saying some kind of a reference the movie made or a pun or that was not movie related. So I, I'm, I'm going with the Mercedes Mercedes, yep. Mercedes. Oh, oh, her, her, the, the prince, Princess Vespa's car was the Mercedes. Okay. I will award zero points to anyone on this question. My favorite of the obscure references is when they're transforming into Mega Maid. Dark Helmet goes, prepare for metamorphosis. Are you ready, Kafka? And they just look at him like they have no idea what he's talking about. That is fantastic. That is 
an obscure reference. <laughs> so um, I know we covered a lot with fourth walls, references, and, and parody. Uh, this is the time where if there's any kind of reference or something that just jumped out and that we haven't been able to talk about yet, um, I want to hear it because there are so many quotable quotes and, and references in this movie. I, yeah, I, I think my favorite, we referenced this already though. I think my favorite is There Goes the Neighborhood with the, uh, with the, the Planet of the Apes. Um, I don't know, I found that, that very funny. Some of the other ones that happen quickly in this movie, like for example, when they're escaping the jail and the guard shoots the princess's hair and she gets the gun and starts nailing him up down. She, that's like, not only is it a reference to Rambo, Dot Matrix literally says, that was good for Rambo. <laughs> like, so there's a lot of times where, and Tom mentioned it before, they specifically say Temple of Doom. One of the things that I found in my research, uh, just out of curiosity to KJ's point with the Mercedes, they actually say uh, when he's talking about trying to see if the, the, the king is saying, can they save the car as well? He references that's a 2001 model. So I just thought it was interesting that they actually put some kind of time frame in the universe. Now, that doesn't mean it's brand new, but it's a princess. So I'd imagine she's getting the brand new car. So I thought that was always of interest. Um, I have a quick bonus question that I want to get in there if we don't have a lot of, because I know we covered a bunch on that. The bonus question will be worth three points, okay? You have to answer both parts of this bonus question to win. It's time for a bonus question. Within the movie, Dark Helmet expresses his love and hate for certain fruits, whether directly or indirectly. What is the fruit he dislikes and what is the fruit he enjoys? I have no freaking idea. <laughs> I, I'm pretty confident on what he doesn't like but I can't remember him liking a fruit, but I'm locked in, I guess. I'll say locked in. I don't remember either. I'm in that same boat. I'm going to have to say locked in. I'll start. Cause I'm completely out to see. Uh, I'm just pulling things out of my butt. Um, uh, I, I think he dislikes bananas and likes mangoes. Well, I'm pretty sure that the one that he dislikes is raspberry because of the jamming sequence that we've talked about a couple of times before. But the one, one he likes, I can't for the life of me think of. So I'm just going to go out there and guess uh, apples. Yeah, I'm in for the, I'm in for the raspberry because he, he, he seems to know that or he seems to suggest that that's a specific insult to him. Um, and then I'm going to guess coconut. Well, no one gets the bonus point, so Chris is going to be the winner for the show. But, uh, yes, we are correct that he dislikes raspberry because when the radar is jammed, he, Lone Star uses raspberry jam just to slight Dark Helmet because he knows that he hates raspberry. But isn't a raspberry in action? Like giving someone the raspberry? No, it was ra no. They jammed it. They literally shot a can of like like a raspberry jam. But isn't the joke? He goes, oh, "Lone Star. He's the only one brave enough to give me the raspberry." Yeah, I think I think you're onto something there. I think it was meant to be on multiple levels. Like a a, it was raspberry jam, and that's just stupid. But then it's also like he's giving me a raspberry. It also brings the question: Is like when have Lone Star and Dark Helmet interacted before? Like up up until this point, it's just it's almost like they're once again going back to the Star Wars films that started episode four. Like what, what happened in one through three? Like where was the backstory that was here? And I thought that was, that was an interesting little thing that they did. 
and and the reason I, I'm focusing on the literal is because Jam literally comes down the screen and he flicks it and tastes it. And he knows that only Lone Star would jam with the raspberry. The fruit that he likes, if you meant if you remember in the question, it said indirectly. Okay, so this was challenging. So when they're combing the desert, they find Yogurt's secret hideout. And he goes, yogurt, yogurt, I hate yogurt, even with strawberries, which implies he enjoys strawberries. <laughs> You're welcome for that bonus question. That concludes the movie quiz. Congratulations to our guest, Chris, and we'll be right back uh, after these brief messages. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website or YouTube channel to hear more about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. To accompany this episode, there is a comparison of Spaceballs to various ideas of parodies, including an essay by Brian L. Ott and Beth Bonstetter. Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com or our YouTube channel to hear more on the B-Side. And we're back for our favorite movie rant. We did cover a ton in this episode already, but I'm sure there's some cool nuggets uh, that we can still explore or bring to our listening audience before we go. It's time for Movie Rant. Uh, I will bring up one more that came up. It was more of a reference than a parody or anything, but just to kind of like go along with the idea of the connection to Star Wars, when they go to the diner scene, like rail towards the end and they fly the Winnebago, which I don't think we've talked about the Winnebago at all, but that's another iconic part of the movie. When they fly the Winnebago down and they land at the diner, you can actually see what appears to be the Millennium Falcon on the landing pad. So it's definitely another nod to the idea that either these universes share existence or it's a, a similar thing or just the fact that Mel Brooks likes those movies and decided he wanted to put a nod in there to it. I think I missed that. I think at some point I knew it was there, but I, I didn't recall seeing it this time. That's really cool though, that they actually had that. I, I wonder if, uh, I, I guess, cause they did go to George Lucas for permission. If it's the exact replica that he probably gave them the, the right to do it. It's, it's close. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because he said, no, you can't do it exactly. Or if it's just that they didn't have the time to do that graphic uh, to, to perfect scale, but it's, it's close enough that you can definitely tell it's got the two prongs in the front. It's got the radar dish on it. It's got the shape. Uh, the prongs might be a little too wide for the, the geeky Star Wars nerd that I am, but it's there. It's definitely there. And it's definitely uh, either they've already eaten and are back on their ship or they just landed and haven't gone into the diner yet. I know we talked a lot about how did Mel Brooks intend the movie to kind of sometimes look like it was falling apart or was it a budgetary thing? But the special effects in this movie are great. All the outside and space stuff, the ships, see that opening scene where, you're, where the ship's flying by? It's, it's really, really good. Um, and one of the other special effects that I really like are Barf's ears. The animatronics in his ears really show a lot of Barf's emotion as a mog, half man, half dog. 
Um, so I really, he's his own best friend. He's his own best friend. Um, so I, I really thought the special effects were, were really good um, when they were good. And then it may point to that Mel Brooks was being intentional when the special effects were a little campy. This was actually one of the first movies where they used green screen. When I was doing my research for the, the movie, they actually said that the actors thought the green screen would actually hurt their eyes because it hadn't been used a lot. So the actors actually all wore sunglasses while on green screen sets because they didn't know how that intense vivid green was going to affect their eyes. We know now that it's not really an issue, uh, but at the time it was a new technology. I, actually, I didn't know that. That's really cool. And that goes right into what KJ was saying. I know when it talks to like how they design things using green screens versus practical, um, I, I always kind of like practical, even, even when you know, for example, when the aliens uh, dancing across uh, in the diner, you, you can literally see the track <laughs> if you look, but I still enjoy it. And, and one thing that I'll say when it comes to practical, uh, I was looking at some of the trivia and the actor who played Pete's the Hut refused to go back into the suit after uh, he filmed uh, for reshoots because it was just so uncomfortable and ridiculous. Yeah, apparently he got like second and third degree burns because they used like molten cheese to get the effect of it falling off of his head. So uh, like if he just refused to do it. That he, wouldn't, he wouldn't go back in the suit for obvious reasons. <laughs> Not worth the second and third degree burns. There was another really small thing I liked. It's um, when Bill Pullman, who plays Lone Star, he's talking to the princess and she's got her matching luggage. And he says the line, take only what you need to survive. The pattern in that sentence is really strange, similar to um, Charleston Heston in Planet of the Ape when he said, a doll that can speak like it, it, it just didn't fit the scene i don't know why he did it but it always sticks out in my head and it always gets a laugh anyway well they they did it because they like directly address it in the desert when they're taking her royal highness's match luggage because they take the in, in the one chest there's this industrial grade hair dryer and he literally says i told you only take what you need to survive and she goes i did I can't live without it. <laughs> Another thing I, I read about Bill Pullman while I was doing research for this was that uh, he was not their first choice, that they actually asked both Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks to be Lone Star before uh, Bill Pullman got the, the role. And apparently they only picked him after they already had Rick Barandis and John Candy because they were the two named people of the at the time. So before Bill Pullman was everybody's president Independence Day, he was a third pick for Lone Star. And I think it worked out. I think he, he did a good job in the role. I, I can't picture the other guys in it now that you know I've seen him. And John Candy is great in this movie too. We didn't really get into it too much, but I, I really enjoyed uh, the Mog in this movie. John Candy always had this kind of great uh, uh, sense on camera. He, he's just kind of a gentle soul. And, you know, whatever role he plays, he kind of brings that into the role, or, or he did. Um, it's, it's always kind of nice to, to have him on camera. There seems to be nothing kind of possibly aggressive about him when he's on screen. Another small thing that um, Barf has in the Winnebago is there's a scene where the whole Winnebago shifts and a bunch of things fall over. And one of the things that falls over is a fire hydrant with his name on it. <laughs> which is kind of gross, but it suggests that he doesn't use the bathroom like Lone Star does. He <laughs> uses the fire hydrant. I didn't, I never wanted to think too deep on that one. 
<laughs> well, I, I think that's a wonderful place to wrap this episode up on uh, Bartholomew, by the way, his full name, his, his use of uh, the restroom. So again, I'd like to thank uh, Chris for joining us and congratulate him as the winner for this week. And again, I'm a broken record. The guests seem to just wipe the floor with us. So we got to really pick up our game, guys. Um, Chris, again, thank you for joining us today and taking some time. Oh, no, thank you very much. This is great. It was good hanging out with you guys again, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Uh, I'd also like to thank our nefarious editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from Japan in 1998, Afterlife. It's going to be a good one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.